So have you ever been riding in the car and you're singing the song, the radio's on and you're singing the song and while you're singing it, you're belting it out like you are living your best life and you're just singing the song but you got a buddy in the car and while you're singing, they look over at you and they go, what are you doing? And you go, I'm singing, man. This is my jam. Like I love this song. And they go, but those aren't the words. Have you ever had that happen to you? Like, you're not singing the right words. And you're like, bro, bro, I've been singing this song for 20 years, all right? Some of you a little less than that. But I've been singing this song for 20 years. I know how this song goes. And they're like, all right, man, well, Google it. Just Google it. And so you Google it, and suddenly you realize your entire life is a lie. And you thought these words that you thought for sure that's what they were singing. Now you realize you've been singing it wrong your entire life. It's really disheartening. Actually, these have a name. I don't know if you know this, but these have a name. They're called Mondegreens. And so, as a weird name, right? Mondegreens. And I know that you've experienced it. You've said that you've experienced it. But let me give you a few examples really quick, just in case you're on the outside. Right? Maybe you've heard the Johnny Nash song. Um, I can see clearly now. Have you heard that song? Old song. I can see clearly now, Lorraine is gone. I don't know who Lorraine is, but I can see clearly now, Lorraine is gone. Listen. I can see clearly now, Lorraine is gone. I don't know where Lorraine went, but she didn't like me anymore, and Lorraine decided it was time to go. There was a song that came out, uh, it's been a while now, when Taylor Swift came out with Blank Space, and, you know, it was a big hit. Everybody was listening to it. And I tried to figure out for the longest time why, why did Taylor Swift want to write a song about Starbucks lovers? I just couldn't figure it out. She says, call all my Starbucks lovers. You don't believe me? Listen. So it's going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over. Mm-hmm. Call all my Starbucks lovers. Here we go. Like, what in the world? What is happening? Why does she love it so much? I was really confused. And the late, great Michael Jackson, you know, Michael Jackson apparently really loves to grill burgers. I don't know why, but he likes to, he just likes going out and grilling burgers. So he sings, your burgers are the best. All right? Your burgers are the best. Listen. so nice. Thank you so much, Michael. That was so nice. My burgers are the best. I cook really good burgers. It's the seasoning, really. And not to be outdone, though, not to be outdone, outdone, Celine Dion also enjoys grilled food. And so Celine Dion, this massive hit that went across the globe, and she sings, she actually sings, the hot dogs go on. I believe that the hot dogs go on. Listen. I mean, I don't know why, but it's just, it's fascinating to me why she would write that song. And then, of course, there's, there is one more that's really just world-renowned, and it, it's a song about a month. It's not April. This month is May, and it sounds like this. I'm not going to do that anymore. 
going to be May. It's going to be May. When you finally realize it, it's going to be May. It'll only happen in that month. Well, last week we started this great series called Parables. And actually, I think that parables are kind of like these mondegreens in a way. Because the original hearers, and even us today, we hear these things, and Jesus is saying these things, and we're like, oh yeah, I hear it. I hear exactly what you're saying, Jesus, but actually, there's another meaning that Jesus is giving us. Another truer, deeper, better meaning. See, Jesus, he doesn't use parables to make everything clear to everybody. That's not what his goal was. Actually, what he wanted to do was provoke people's imagination. He wanted to invite people in to see what God was doing in the world from a new perspective. And so parables would reveal God's truth to those people who were willing and ready to receive what those truths were, right? But also, at the same time, would conceal God's truths from those who were in opposition to him. Is why we read, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or, he who has ears to hear the right lyrics, let him hear the right lyrics. So Jesus is the savior of the world, and he was also a master teacher. One third of the recording sayings of Jesus in the synoptic gospels are in parables. And we also, we've used stories to illustrate ideas and truths for centuries, But Jesus is actually doing more than just illustrating a cool little idea. Jesus used parables to talk about himself and the coming kingdom of God. Jesus used parables to talk about himself and the coming kingdom of God. And as you go through it, you start to realize there there are three themes that show up in parables. Number one, there's the surprise of God's kingdom. So they all thought, well, God's kingdom is coming. That sounds great. That means that God, Jesus is going to defeat Rome, and we're all going to live different lives. It's going to be wonderful. And no, actually, there's a surprise coming. That's not what I'm doing. The second thing, it revealed God's upside-down kingdom. You realize that, uh, actually, God's kingdom has a different set of values than the ones that we live with today. And then the third one is God's kingdom requires a decision. Jesus is telling these parables, these stories, and you realize, oh, I have to do something with this. And actually, that's what's going to happen to us today. So I heard this great description of parables, and here's what it said. The parable begins where the listener is, but then pushes beyond into a new realm of discovery. And I love that. It's like a mondegreen. You realize something new. Because every parable starts where you and I are. But then Jesus wants to push us a little forward to discover something new. And it reminds us that this is exactly how Jesus works. Jesus meets you where you are, but doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants to push you forward further into new discovery with him. And my prayer is that happens for you today and actually throughout this series. So today, we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Everybody say, yay! And we're going to talk about hell all day. No, we're actually not very much. We'll get there. So this section of Luke is actually one of my favorites in the Bible. We sang about it today, Luke 15, and we're in Luke 16 today. And when you study the Gospels, you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously you start to see, well, these are different accounts of the same story told from different perspectives. And each one has highlights or emphases or characteristics that they point out about Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is our healer and our savior. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is our healer and our Savior. And what we're talking about here, actually, so far, is really this word context. Everybody say context. What we're talking about here is context, and context is really important. It's context, actually, that helps us get to the right lyrics. So, have you ever had this happen to you? You're you're watching a movie, and somebody comes in halfway. It happens in my house all the time. They're like, 
yeah, no, I don't really want to watch a movie. But then they come in halfway and they start watching the movie. And they sit down and they don't know what's going on. And so they're like, oh, why'd he do that? What's that guy doing? Why is he, oh, 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 nobody would do that. Oh, what's going on here? Well, that's crazy. Oh, that doesn't make sense at all. And you're like, shut up. You're real fun to watch a movie with. Why does that happen? They don't have the context. They don't understand what's going on. Or maybe you're sitting down at the local summer moon. You're having a coffee. And you overhear somebody say, I'm going to kill him. And you're like, well, this is crazy. I just discovered a murder plot at the local summer moon. Well, maybe, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not so serious. That Maybe it's a, it's a wife and her husband leaves his shavings all over the bathroom counter when he shaves. And she's just so furious. He leaves his dirty clothes all over the floor. And she's mad. I'm just going to kill him. Maybe that's what she's saying. Or maybe it's somebody who's got a dog and they're mad at their dog because their dog just keeps digging up the backyard. And they're furious about it. And they're like, oh, I'm just going to kill him. It's hyperbole. They're not actually going to kill the dog. They would never do that. We're talking about context. Maybe it's somebody, I don't know, who has a cat, and they're just scared the cat's going to kill them first. I don't really know how cats work, but I just, I hear they're mean, so I don't know. I'm not sure. They just seem mean. I don't know. Is that good preaching? That's good preaching? No, it's bad preaching, I think, is what you're saying. Okay, got it. Of all the things, when we're reading the scriptures, a lot of times we miss context. We miss what's really happening. We grab a hold of one verse and we say, we don't really understand what's going on there. And we say things like, well, what this verse means to me is, actually, that's not the right thing that we should be saying. Here's something that I think will be helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. The Bible was written for you. It wasn't written to you. The Bible was written for you. It's written for all of us. It's just that it wasn't written to you. We know the Bible, it comes in this single bound volume, but actually a single bound book, but actually it's a, it's a collection of 66 books. Most of you know that. 66 books in one volume, it's actually a library of books, and this library is diverse. This library has in it, it's got poetry, it's got history, it's got prophecy, it's got law in it. It has all these things, and it's written in three different languages to different cultures over 1,500 years. It's very complex, written by a bunch of different people to a bunch of different cultures. Some of these books are actually written a thousand years before the other books. As the Holy Spirit breathed onto Bible authors and they wrote down what the Spirit wanted to say to those people in that time. And so our task is always, what is God saying to them? And only then can we start to understand and apply what it can mean for us. And when you start to get that and you start to learn that and you research that, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute. The Bible's actually not boring at all. The Bible is actually phenomenal. It's just that we don't get that far, and so we don't realize it. So this has been helpful to me, something that I read recently, actually. Never read a Bible verse. <laughs> it's just a good place to start. Never read a Bible verse. Read the chapter. Read the chapters before and after. Read the whole book in one sitting and really begin to understand what God is saying. So let's take a minute, if you don't mind, let's get a little context. Everybody settle in. It's about to get nerdy. In the Gospel of Luke, God is divinely concerned with the sinner and the outcast. As you read through this book, throughout this Gospel, Luke is drawing a distinction between false righteousness of the religious leaders and the lowly sinner who repents. And it is one of my favorites because you've got Jesus eating with sinners. You've got Jesus healing the unclean. Jesus, he, he places an emphasis on women in this gospel. Hey, ladies, he places an emphasis on women in this gospel. 
And it's incredible. Jesus, he's the friend that sits down and he eats with the worst of sinners. He leaves the 99. He goes after the one. In the prodigal son, he tells the story we sing about today where the, the prodigal comes running back and he's the father that takes back the son after he betrays him. The Gospel of Luke emphasizes that salvation is for everybody. Say everybody. Luke's Gospel has a marked antipathy to exclusiveness and intolerance. So if you've ever felt like you're the outcast, if you've ever felt like you're too unclean to be near Jesus like we were praying today, then this is the book for you. This is the gospel for you. I know it's the one for me. So it's in this book and in this setting that we find this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And just before Jesus tells our parable for today, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's talking about money. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're there and they're listening in. As Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, they heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. I'm not sure how you sneer, but it seems very ugly. And he said to them, you are the ones ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So you've got Jesus teaching the disciples, and he's saying, that I want you to use earthly wealth for eternal purposes. He's saying things like, if you, if you can be trusted with little, then you can be trusted with much. He's saying, like we just read, you can't serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, the religious elite of the time, they're sitting there and they're listening in. These are the guys that they're, on the outside, they look perfect and good. They look like they've got everything together. But on the inside, they're full of religious arrogance These are the guys who are always judgmental. They're the ones who look down their nose at you. They always notice and can pick out your flaws. They're always willing to tell you how you don't measure up. Anybody know anybody like that? Do not look at your spouse. Don't do it. Stop it. Look straight ahead, guys. Straight ahead. Good job. The Pharisees are listening into Jesus' teaching, and they don't like it. They're ridiculing Jesus because it said they're, they're lovers of money. He said, you justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. So there's more that's going on here than the Pharisees, they just like money. It's not really that they're mad at Jesus for getting on to them because they like money. That's not what's happening. The Pharisees held a theological belief called the Deuteronomic Principle. And I told you it was going to get nerdy. The Deuteronomic Principle. And it said that if you obey God, you will be blessed. If you don't obey God, then you will be blessed cursed. You won't be blessed. You'll actually be cursed. You can read Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 19 to get a picture of kind of where this starts from. So the Deuteronomic principle basically basically says that A plus B equals C. So you, you obey God, you are blessed. That's the way this works. The problem is A plus B doesn't always equal C, does it? It just doesn't seem like that's true. We all know people who do obey God, and they get sick. We all know people who, they just completely disobey God repeatedly, and then they get promoted ahead of us. We've all seen things like that happen. Life is just a little more complex than that. Now, ultimately, it is true. If you live your life obeying God, yes, you will find blessing, and in the end, you will be blessed. Ultimately, yes, this is absolutely true. It's just that we live in the tension of this fallen world, and things don't always work the way that we want them to. 
Just take a tour through Job, and you'll be convinced pretty quickly. Just read Ecclesiastes, and you'll see the scriptures actually have more to say on this topic than just this. So life is rarely A plus B equals C. Actually, my life, my life looks more like this most of the time. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know anything. Sometimes you follow Jesus with all your heart, and then life throws you a left hook, and you just get knocked down. Sometimes it just happens that way. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. It's not fully here yet. And so the Pharisees, they misused this whole idea to support their own lavish lifestyles. They ignored the parts that didn't agree with those lifestyles. So, well, I got money. I'm doing good. Obviously, I'm blessed. I'm headed for heaven. You don't have money, so you're sick. Obviously, you're not blessed, and you're headed for H-E double hockey sticks. <laughs> Where does that even come from? I have no idea. <laughs> Welcome to the 80s, everyone. Um, so the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is in response to this Deuteronomic principle. So here we go. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus describes this rich man. He's wearing purple, fine linen. Purple is the color of royalty. This guy looks kingly. This guy's got it all. And not only that, he's feasting. And not only is he feasting, he's feasting sumptuously every single day. From the outside, it looks like this rich guy's got it all together. He has it all. He's got Gucci robes. He's rocking Air Jordan sandals. Dude's got the newest Ice Scroll 13. It was terrible. It's a dad joke. I, it's, I'm sorry. I apologize for it. He's got the brand new chariot. Two horsepower. It's amazing. He must be righteous. He's obviously blessed. But this guy, Lazarus, he must have some wicked sin in his life. Obviously, he's displeased God in some way because he's poor. He's sick. He lays outside the rich man's house. That means that he's lame. He just, he just wants to be fed with the crumbs off of his table. Covered in sores and so bad that the dogs are coming to lick those sores. And this isn't like, oh, cute. The little puppies are coming to help. Puppies are the best. That's not what this is. Dogs are considered unclean. So he's trying to shoo them away. And the fact that he couldn't shoo them away means that he's probably lame and he can't even do it. Or he's just so sick that he can't even do it. Now remember, this is a parable. Starts with a certain rich man. So what Jesus is saying here is that rich man, that could be any one of us. But then, kind of unique to this, there's a poor man with a name. The name Lazarus. He personalizes the poor man. And he raises our concern for him. So you've got this violent contradiction, right, of the rich man feasting sumptuously inside while Lazarus tragically is dying in misery just outside his door. And in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And, and you know what? Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember 
that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Whew. So eventually both men die, because death is the great equalizer. No one can escape it. Both men meet the same fate, regardless of their earthly stature or position. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Typically, we like to call this heaven. But the rich man goes to this place, Hades. Hades really is a word just, just means the grave. It's this shadowy place. And most of us, upon reading it, we assign it to hell. But I don't think this is actually a commentary on what heaven and hell are actually like. I know that it brings up lots of questions. You're like, well, well, what's the chasm? What is hell like? What about the fire? How long does it last? What's going on in hell? Most of us want to jump straight there, but this is a parable. And so we should be cautious, and most scholars think that we should be cautious about making observations and then creating doctrine out of this parable about heaven and hell. The point of this teaching is not, I don't think, explaining exactly what heaven and hell are like. This is not a commentary on that. Jesus is making a specific point, and this point would have shaken the original audience. The rich man appeared blessed by God and ended up in Hades. Lazarus appeared cursed by God, and he ended up in heaven. And the rich man has learned nothing. He's the exact same way. Apparently, he knows Lazarus' name. He knew him every day when he walked by. He just never did anything for him because he says, hey, yo, send Lazarus over here to dip his finger and cool my tongue. So he knows who Lazarus is, but he did nothing to help him. Trying to order him around to relieve his suffering, the roles get reversed. The value system of the kingdom are different. And what he did to Lazarus is now happening to him, only this setup is forever. So in verse 27, it's getting heavy around here. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, if somebody zombie-like will show up, they will repent. And he said to him, If they don't hear Moses and the prophet, they've heard all the stuff they need to hear. They know it. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we all know what's coming in the future. It's like this. It's amazing what Jesus does there. The rich man understands that all is lost for him. But he also knows that his brothers are jerks too. And so he's trying to do something about them. And Abraham says, they've got Moses. They've got the prophets. God's word has been clear on this from the beginning as to what I want you to do. Our devotion to God is seen. Our devotion to God is proven by our care for others. Same thing that Jesus would later say in Mark chapter 12. I want you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I want you to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But their hard hearts, and the hard hearts of this rich man, have produced eyes and hearts that missed what God was doing in the world. So what is Jesus doing here? Actually, what we think is he's teaching a well-known uh, folk tale that would have been heard a lot in the ancient world. They would have all heard stories about wealth and poverty being reversed in the afterlife. They'd be familiar with this. But Jesus does something a little bit different. He alters the ending. He changes 
the ending. Because normally, in a folk tale like this, when someone asks if they can go back to warn those who still are to come, the request gets granted. In Jesus' story, the request is denied. Leaving the hearers of this story on that day, and us today with a few questions yet to be answered. And Jesus He's hitting right at the heart of the Pharisees' ideology, this Deuteronomic principle. Jesus is flipping this worldview on its head. Don't you just love it when he does that to you? It's just the best. Actually, afterwards, I really do love it. In the middle, not so much. But according to their ideology, this rich man, he should have gone to heaven. Who cares if he helped Lazarus or not? He was blessed. He should be able to go to heaven. Who cares how he acted or didn't care for Lazarus in any way? He had money, he's blessed, he ends up in heaven. They're so consumed with their own ideas, so consumed with their own practices, so consumed with with, uh, defending their positions, they missed God among them, and they missed the kingdom that he was bringing to bear in the earth. And Jesus has been criticized because he welcomes outcasts. Jesus gets criticized because he welcomes sinners. And now it seems like he's bringing into their present world what's going to be happening in the world to come that he's bringing. He says, on earth as it is in heaven is his desire. And so that, that world, that world that is to come, comes crashing into the present. And it does not look at all like the Pharisees thought that it would. Where the outcast matters where the first are last and the last are first. And all wrongs are made right. And so we start to see those themes that we talked about at the beginning, those themes of parables, they start showing up. The surprise of God's kingdom. Wait, what? Wait, what? You're not going to overthrow? Wait, wait, wait a minute. What? Out of nowhere, the rich guy is out and the poor guy is in? What's happening? The upside down values of the kingdom. Wait, 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 wait. His wealth didn't mean what they thought it did. It didn't prove what they thought that it did. And the third thing, God's kingdom requires a decision because Jesus is saying, hey, listen to me. It's not too late for you to jump in and do what I'm doing. The Pharisees, these lovers of money, they're behaving to the people that Jesus continued to welcome just like that rich man was behaving to Lazarus. And Jesus is saying, you guys, it's not too late yet. It's not too late yet. You still have time to follow me. You still have time to do what I'm doing. You still have time to pay attention and love people. You still have time to partner with me and put the world right, just as God plans for it to be. And you know that Moses and the prophets, they've talked about this, and you've ignored them. And the day is going to come when it will be too late for you, and you will not be able to reverse it. But that day is not today, and so choose. I think this is what he's saying to them. Look, everybody, this is a cautionary tale, and it's for all of us. It's for you, it's for me, it's for our church, it's for one chapel, because it's so easy for us to be like the rich man, isn't it? It's so easy for us to be so caught up in our own stuff. It's easy for me to get caught up in my own pleasures and my own desires and my own life. And i got to put my head down because i got a lot of work to do. I'm doing kingdom work here, so I don't have time for people. It's easy to do. It's easy for you to do it, too. It's easy to focus in on my career and my possessions and my wealth and trying to get more and trying to save. And it's easy for me to do all that and miss people. It's easy for us to be like the Pharisees, so focused in on their practices, so focused in on their ideas, so focused in on their own opinions that they miss what God is doing in the earth and miss the people around. 
It's easy for us to be a church that gets consumed with what's going on inside of these four walls. Is the music right? Is the sound right? Are we welcoming people well? It's easy for us to just get so focused in here and miss that there's a bunch of teenagers in Mexico right now sharing the gospel outside of these four walls. And we need to keep our eyes there and not so much here. This matters. I would argue that matters more. We come here to get filled up. We gather here so that we can scatter out there. That's actually the reason why we show up on a Sunday. God is divinely concerned here with the poor and the outcast. There's a, there's a book by a guy named Rodney Stark, and the book's title is The Triumph of Christianity, How the Jesus Movement Became the World's Largest Religion. And it's about why Christianity actually succeeded and continued to spread and grow. Like, how did a makeshift religion gain such traction? How did a makeshift religion, I don't know if you could call it makeshift, but how did this religion actually take root and take hold and affect the course of human history? One of those reasons, there are many, but one of those reasons is Christianity took care of the poor and the outcast. This is who we were. In the early church, they cared for widows and orphans. They took in the societal outcasts and the poor. In the early days of the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who would go around and pick up abandoned babies left in the trash, picking them up and caring for them. And so... This simple message from Jesus today that actually carries a lot of weight, I want us to pay attention to it and ask ourselves this question on our own lives. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus. You can participate in it right now. You can join Jesus in what he's doing to take his good world where he's taking it, putting everything to right. And one day, everything will be made right. One day, there'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more poor. There'll be none of that will exist anymore. And you can be a part of making that happen right now. So, the question for us today is, who is the Lazarus outside your gates? Who's the Lazarus that sits outside your gates that you may be missing? Who's the person you pass by every day that needs help? Is it that coworker that just makes all kind of bad choices all the time? And their life is just a wreck. And they've brought much of it on themselves. Is it a family member who's just been incredibly unkind to you and hurt you and, 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 and betrayed you? If you're in high school or middle school, is it just a classmate that you know that's just out of control with their parents and living in rebellion and doing whatever they want to do? Who sits outside your gates? So ultimately, this is a story about the coming of God's kingdom and what he's doing and compassion. Compassion, yes, amen. Compassion, she liked that. Compassion is this great word. Compassion isn't just feeling for somebody. Compassion actually means it's a deep awareness of the suffering of somebody else. But it's more than that. It's deciding I'm going to take action to relieve it. That's actually what compassion is. And the test of a heart that loves God truly is that it obeys his commands. It obeys what he says. And so how you and I, we sang it today, how we relate to God, this intimate relationship that we have, how we relate to God vertically should influence how we relate to people horizontally. This thing that we have with God, it should affect what we do to the world outside of us. It should never just stay here. It should affect everybody that we come into contact with. And this story doesn't say that you have to go out there and you better go change the world. 
Get out there and change the entire world. That's not what it says. But it does say you need to pay attention to who's right around you in your sphere of influence. You do need to look and see who's sitting outside of my gates. And if we lived like this, we could make an incredible impact in our region and in our world. And a couple things, I think, begin to happen when we start to live with this question as a church. Number one, God transforms people's lives. It's happening in Mexico right now. It's happening in the Dominican Republic as they go. It's happening. People's lives are being transformed as they experience Jesus through you. They hear the good news of the gospel and what God is doing and how much he loves them and how much he wants to redeem and restore them. But the second thing that happens that we don't always see is God transforms your life. Like you get transformed when you live with this. And it's paradoxical because we tend to think of it as, I need my life to be better, man. My life is a wreck. I don't like how I'm living. I need to change myself. I'm going to read some self-help books. I'm going to get on a diet. I'm going to exercise finally. I still am going to exercise one day. It's going to happen, believe me. I'm going to exercise. I need a better job. I need to get a new house. i got to find a better boyfriend or a better girlfriend. I'm tired of this one. I need a better spouse. We're always looking for that thing that will make our lives better. But we don't have to do that. God transforms your life. You find joy and fulfillment, your purpose in life, as you start to live with this. You start to realize, I don't, I don't actually need all of this, these conditions of my life to change. I just, I just need to do this. I just need to partner with God and take his world somewhere. And suddenly I'm more fulfilled than I ever realized I could be. You don't have to get to the end of your life and realize, whoa, 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 whoa I, missed, whoa, I missed it? What do you mean I missed it? And it's too late? What do you mean? That does not have to be your experience. It's not too late. Luke 17, says, whoever tries to keep their life, well, they're gonna lose it. But whoever loses their life will preserve it. I like it in the message paraphrase version. It says, if you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you're gonna lose it. But if you let that life go, just let it go, you're gonna find life on God's terms. And that's the, faith, that's the place, that's the space where you wanna live. And I know what you're saying. You're like, Brent, bro, you don't know what my coworkers, you don't know what they're like. They're mean, they're horrible. You don't understand my family and how they've treated me. But in this parable, Jesus doesn't give us any detail on how the people are or how they've acted or what they've done. Maybe Lazarus deserved to be on the side of the road. We don't know. Maybe he deserves everything that's coming to him. Maybe he was cruel to his family. Maybe it's his own fault that he ended up in here. Jesus doesn't give us that knowledge. We don't know. Maybe that homeless guy on the side of the road that we pass all the time, maybe... Maybe he deserves where he is. Maybe he pursued drugs and made bad decisions his entire life and he lost it all and he betrayed his family and it's all his fault and he deserves to be there. This parable is Jesus saying, it's still our responsibility to pay attention and to help. Here's what I can tell you. I didn't deserve Jesus giving his life for me and neither did you. My wife is a real practical person and... Um, you know, I'll say things sometimes like, babe, I've been working so hard. I deserve a night out. I deserve this. You know, I, I deserve a break. Come on, the kids have been doing good. They deserve a treat. And my wife always says, they don't deserve anything. You know what you deserve? 
you deserve death. That's what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, it's super fun in our house. It's really, it's a lot of fun. But she's not wrong. I don't deserve anything. I didn't earn any of this. It's a free gift that was given to me by Jesus. And now I'm rich. I'm rich because of what Jesus has done for me. Now I've been rescued. You've been set free. You've been made righteous by God because of Jesus. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You've been filled up with his Holy Spirit so that you can go out into the world and actually make an impact and make a difference. But there are so many people out there who have none of that, and they're laying on the ground full of sores with dogs trying to lick those sores, laying in the streets, no way out, and you and I are the ones with the answer for them. You've got it. He resides inside of you. So I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're going to close. In what ways are you like the rich man? Focused on yourself. Focused on your own needs. Focused on your own thoughts. In what ways are you like the Pharisees? You're justifying your inaction. Maybe with religious jargon. What you may not know is that right now, as a giving member of One Chapel, you're actively doing this kind of work. You're already doing it. You support missionaries all over the globe. Already, you give to local ministries right here in our region. You're already doing it. We give 10% of everything that we receive in tithes and offerings. We give 10% away to go out and make a difference in the world. We do that every single month. We've done it from the very beginning. And this past week at Summer Blast, those little kids, they made gift bags, blessing bags for single moms at the Pregnancy Resource Center. Your kids did that work this week. Right now, those tag students in Leon, they're serving. They did a kids outreach. And on the first night of that kids outreach, 53 children raised their hands to say, I want to follow the Jesus that you're talking about. This week, that team of the Dominican Republic, they're going to build that house for a single woman like Mission has always been a part of our values. So that's great. You're doing good work. It's awesome. But what if today this idea became deeply personal for you? What if today you decided, okay, I don't just want to give and not know about it. I love doing that, but I, but I want it to be personal for me. Who's outside my gates? Maybe it just begins with prayer for that person. Maybe it begins with prayer for that coworker, prayer for that family member. I recognize that there are some situations where you can't. Like there's been abuse and there's been trouble and it's dangerous even sometimes. And so you're not the one to help them. I understand that. But you can pray for them. Maybe, maybe today, what if today, a bunch of us, we just went, we just went to Walmart. We went to HEB and we picked up some snacks. We picked up some cold water and put it in an igloo, put it in a Yeti. When we see those guys on the side of the road, we just actually stopped instead of ignoring them and said, hey, man, I just, I just want to say Jesus bless you. But Brent, there's so many problems. I know, there, I, know, I know there's still so many problems, but it's a start. What if we began to look for who's outside of our gates? But in order for us to do that, we have to say yes. Jesus has presented this parable and we have to decide. You have to choose today who you're going to serve. And so I want to lead you in a response. And I think there's probably two this morning. One, the first response is probably, well, 
you know what, Brent, I think I am the outcast. I'm the person sitting outside the gates. I'm sick. I'm poor. I'm broken. I'm the outcast. I'm not accepted. But I came today to tell you Jesus says you are accepted. And he loves you. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he's welcoming you in. So if you're on the outside today, he's calling you and saying, come on back home. Come on back inside. And all you've got to do is surrender your life to him today. And you're in. And you begin the journey with him. That's one response. The second response, I think, is those of us who would just say, I'm trying to do my best, but I'm, I'm kind of like the rich man. I'm like the Pharisees. I'm pretty nose down, nose to the grindstone, trying to get my stuff done. And today, I want to look up, and I want to see who's outside my gates, and I want to make a difference in this world. And so if you're in either one of those camps, I just want you to stretch your hands out, and I want you to pray along with me. You might say something like this, Jesus, I need you. I need your spirit. I need your life. I, I feel like I'm on the outside, God. I feel like I'm the outcast. I'm the one who's messed up, and I need you today. So would you come and receive me again? I confess my shortcomings to you. I confess my failings to you. I confess that in some ways I've walked away from you. And today I want to come home. Would you receive me again? And Jesus says, I will. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Now, God, would you fill that person with your love and with your care and with your light and life? In Jesus' name. And for the rest of us, and maybe even for all of us, God, we, we want to pay heed to what you're saying. And we don't want life to pass us by just looking inward at us. We want to see the kingdom of God has come and it's for everyone. And we want to lift our eyes to see who's seated around us that we can bring into that kingdom. So I pray for us that we would be like Holy Spirit hotspots, hotspots of the Spirit's activity in our world, that everywhere that we go, every person we come into contact with that gets in that hotspot, that they would be met by you. And that we would find ways to meet their needs and, and, and help them and share the good news about what God has done for them. Father, would you allow this to be something that settles in to one chapel and continues to be a part of who we are? We say yes and amen, and we love you and thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thank you so much for letting me spend some time with you today.